The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her, his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was, uh, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went in and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoled her, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The Gospel of the Lord. Um, so, the British writer, thinker, G.K. Chesterton. He was writing and, uh, and entering into lots of public dialogues early in the 20th century. And he wrote a book called Orthodoxy in which he sort of explains his belief in 
the ancient teachings of the church at a time when it was very unfashionable to believe in things like that. And in this book, he gives a brief story that tells of how, maybe how he came to write the book or maybe something that happened while he was starting to write the book. But he was walking along with a publisher, a friend of his. And this publisher, a friend of his, was not a believer. Um, but at some point they're talking and his publisher friend makes some comment about some person that, well, that person is going to do fine because he believes in himself. And if you know anything about G.K. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton is sort of this lovable curmudgeon. And that's just one of his tics. It's sort of like somebody, somebody says something and then you're about to get an earful. So this guy says, well, that guy will do fine because he believes in himself. And then Chesterton launches into this like diatribe on how, how like, how un, how like un, unstable it is, how, how not a good practice it is to just believe just in yourself. And after he gives this guy a huge earful, you know, the guy just made one, one little offhanded remark. The guy says, well, the man is not to believe in himself. In what is he to believe? And after a long pause, Chesterson writes, I replied, I will go home. And I will write a book in answer to that question. And this is the book that I've written to answer it. That's what he says in Orthodoxy. Well, the book of John is actually written on a very similar premise. If a man is not to believe in himself, in what is he to believe? John 20 tells us this. The, the writer is summing up the entire gospel, and he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the book of John, and then specifically, we're going to hone in on the story of Lazarus today. It was written down so that you would believe. If man's not to believe in himself, what is he to believe in? This is going to try to answer that question. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. Um, so one interesting thing about this description of John's description of his gospel is that he's very, he's very intentionally giving you a, a literary thing. He says, hey, there's all these things that happen, and I went through and I chose. These are the signs that I'm going to tell you. And he wrote his book in sort of two parts. The first part is called the Book of Signs. He walks through a huge list of, of signs that Jesus does, and they're all miracles. The second part of John is the Book of Glory. It's Jesus's march to the cross, his glorification in the crucifixion, being lifted high in the crucifixion, death and resurrection. So John's really intentionally telling you a story, and I think one of the best things you can do with a story is read it like a story. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, I don't know if anyone here is currently studying for like an AP English exam in high school. Is that, is that any of us? Because uh, so, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a trip back down memory lane to, to a lot of narrative elements today. We're going to discuss this story in terms of, and this is a long list, so get ready for this. Theme, character, setting, exposition, inciting incident, foreshadowing, rising action and conflict, climax, denouement. And we're only going to take about 15 minutes on each of those. 
So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. So, so let's dive in. I'll try to remind you what these are, but I think they're going to like help us really engage this as a story that leads us to a truth. So the first thing I want us to see is actually the theme of this. I'm going to, I'm going to set us up usually in a, in an English class, you have to read the story and then the teacher is going to tell you, ask you this at the very end, but I'm going to, I'm just going to lob you a softball and give you the theme. What I think is a theme right from the beginning. And it's this, if you believe you will see the glory of God. And since I think that's the theme of this, we're going to focus on two questions about that in this sermon. So if the theme is, if you believe you will see the glory of God, here's the two questions I want us to think about. Who are we believing in? And what does belief look like? All right, so that's theme. We already got out of the way. Next, characters. We're actually going to skip this one. We're not going to do it. We're just going to meet the characters as they come. So that's two out of the way. Look, we're already, we're already sailing through these list of narrative elements. Exposition. Does anybody remember what exposition is? Exposition is when the author says, hey, I want to tell you a story, but before I tell you the story, there's like a few things you need to know. Um, this is the kind of thing that whenever, it's, it's maybe you have a dad who, if he starts a story, he says, well, the thing you need to know about this, you know you're going to be in for a long a long preamble, okay? But in this story, you actually don't have that. I would actually say that everything in this story is mostly story. There's one piece of exposition in this story. And the piece of exposition is that Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. That's an important thing. John's going to tell you the story, but it's almost like he, he wants to start and just say, now, now, real quick before we get started, you need to know something. Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. That's important because there are moments in the story where you, you might wonder if he didn't say that, but he says it a few times. The very beginning, Martha and Mary actually introduced their request to Jesus for, for his intervention by saying, the one that you love is sick. And then after that, just in case you're wondering, did Martha and Mary like not really get Maybe Jesus didn't really love him, but they really thought he did. No, the narrator actually says, now Jesus loved, what does he say? He says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he repeats it. This is the foundational thing to bring in to this story. Um, It's got really clear implications for us. Jesus loves us in the same way. Let's start off by reading the story that Jesus loves the people in this story. At the next narrative element inciting incident. So an inciting incident in a story is a thing that happens that pulls the characters into the plot. At the beginning of the story, they're all sitting around. Bilbo is sitting around in his little house in the Shire and a wizard walks by, right? And in this case, the inciting incident is that there was a man that Jesus did love and he became sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I want us to start off by seeing the posture of these sisters in this, in this message that they send to Jesus. It's a message of faithfulness. When something is going wrong in their lives, they're willing to look at Jesus. It's a message of 
Faithfulness, not just in his ability to act, but faithfulness in his love. The one whom you love is sick. There's belief that's a foundation for this. And it's a faithfulness of expectation. So you're going to do something, right? This is a model that we can actually bring into our interactions with Jesus. And it's what brings the characters, in this case, Jesus, it's what brings the characters in the story into the plot, this faithful expectation. You do love us. And you can do something. You're going to do something right. But here is where the story takes an odd turn. This is maybe what we would call a plot twist, although those usually come later. This one comes pretty early on. Jesus does love Lazarus. He is able to do something. Um, so what happens? Well, the next literary element is foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is when you sort of, when the author is going to kind of like give you a hint of, hey, how things are going to go. It was a dark and stormy night. Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be a, a story with lots of tumult and darkness in it. Well, in this case, the foreshadowing is not subtle at all. Verse 4, Jesus responds to this message and he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the Son of Man, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then we get our plot twist. Verse 6, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's unexpected. What's going on here? Verse 7, we didn't get all of this because it's a really long passage, but I'm going to step through a little bit of it that wasn't in our bulletin. Verse 7, um, he said, let's go to Judea again. I've got the verse wrong in my notes, so now I'm going to look at this. He says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to awaken him. The disciples, he's talking to the disciples at this point. The disciples don't know what he's talking about. So they're like, well, Lord, if he's, if he's sick, he needs to sleep. Don't go wake him up. And he says, and so, so Jesus told them plainly. I love that. I love that. It's like, so Jesus was like, so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So this is actually the end of what I would call scene one of this little story. And if you think about the way that the foreshadowing has given us, here's what the arc of this story is going to be. Scene one ends on a pretty high note. Okay? Because... What scene one has packaged for us is a story where Lazarus got sick. Jesus comes in and it all turns out okay. So where's the tension in this story? Tension is what drives a story. Where's the tension in this story? And the tension in this story comes in that statement. Just it's hidden in there. Where Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there because now you're going to have a chance to believe. The real tension is here. There's an opportunity to believe in Jesus. The existential question that's hanging out, of, out there is, who is going to believe? Are the disciples going to believe? This brings us into our theme of this story. If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. But the story has only begun. We now enter into a part of the story 
known as rising action and conflict. There are three major conflicts in this story, and they're going to bring the story closer and closer to its climax. These three conflicts are the conversations that Jesus has with first Martha and then Mary. And then finally, it's sort of the discussion that happens around him, towards him, among the group of mourners who had come from Jerusalem. So let's look at these conflicts. Because we want to find out who are we believing in? Remember, that's the question we're asking about this theme. Who is it that we're supposed to believe in? And what does belief look like? Um, let's look first at Martha. So the personality of Martha. You may have seen on the internet at some point, these, um, like, it comes from Dungeons and Dragons, like the character affinity sort of grid where a character can be good or neutral or evil. Well, obviously Martha is good, so let's not worry about that. But then also you can, there's another dimension that, that's orthogonal. It cuts across the other way. And, it, and it's a character can be lawful, so they can be good in a way that's lawful. In other words, I follow all the rules. When I see the rules, I make sure that I do them. Or all the way over to a, a character can be good in a way that's chaotic. That in some times it's like the rules don't show us what's good. I have to break the rules and just go off in my direction. Chaotic characters tend to be a little more reactive and spontaneous. Well, if you're wondering, Martha is lawful good. And if you're familiar with any of the other characters in the story, you may be thinking of one who is chaotic good. We'll get to her in a minute. Martha is lawful good. So, Jesus has got to come from across the Jordan. There's so much significance in that, but I just skipped right over the setting section because I wasn't reading my notes, and I think that was probably God. So just, just be aware that we've gone through setting. Jesus is coming in from the Jordan. In order to get to the Jordan, he's probably got to come in from the east, and that's over here for you guys. He's got to come in from the east, come around the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem's right here. So all these mourners who are coming in from Jerusalem see Jesus coming in, they get to Bethany, where Martha and Mary are, and they go, Jesus, as we saw Jesus on the road, he's coming around the Mount of Olives. And so Martha gets up when she hears it. She immediately goes out to see Jesus. Why? Is she hopeful? Well, based on the way that she greets Jesus, she might not be that hopeful. Um, does she have a few choice words to say to Jesus? She might. She might want a private word with Jesus. Uh, she starts off by saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is the sound of a faithful lament. On the one hand, it says, Lord, I can really see how things could be very different from the way they are right now. But I know that you have all the power. The words that Martha uses here, whatever God asks, whatever you ask God for, he'll give you. They're actually really close to the words that Jesus speaks about himself later on in the passage. But here's the interesting thing. Martha's faith here is being lived out in this lawful way where she knows what's right 
and she says what's right. And Jesus is just going to press in just a little bit. Just to see, yeah, but do you really believe? And it's good that he does. Because here's what he finds. He responds to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Martha gives, again, the right answer. It's, it's true. He will rise again in the resurrection on the right day. This is the theological answer. She has learned what is true, and she's giving it back to Jesus. And he's going to press in just a little bit deeper. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What? I just have to pause here because I don't, I don't fully know what to do with it. Right? Now, this is one of the I am statements in John. John is full of these. Most people would agree that these I am statements where Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the resurrection of the life. These are Jesus pointing at his identity, that he is things that only God is. But all those other I am statements, I have a little bit of an idea of what to do with. This one breaks me. I am the resurrection and the life. Because all the other I am statements, we sort of have them given to us in some tangible way by the work and ministry of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. But this one is still in front of us. There's still a mystery around this one. And somehow he says, I am that thing. Jesus is asking her to believe something that does not make sense yet. He's asking, and I know it didn't make sense to her because it still doesn't totally make sense, right? He's asking her to believe something that is mysterious. And he asks it explicitly. He says that, and then he says, whoever believes in me, though he died, yet he will live. Whoever believes in me will not die, but have eternal life. Do you believe this? I'm going to tell you something that's like impossible for you to understand. You've just given me really good theological answers that I know you understand because that's that you learned them. You were able to understand the things that you gave me. Now I'm going to ask you if you can believe something you can't understand. We're starting to get a glimpse of who are we believing in? The resurrection and the life. So what does it mean to believe? When Martha answers this question that Jesus gives her, do you believe this? Funnily enough, she still answers with what might be the most theologically robust answer to this question in the entire New Testament. The only thing that comes close would be Peter's response to Jesus. It's very similar. It happens in John chapter 6, but it also happens in the synoptic gospels um, in the story of Caesarea Philippi where Peter pronounces And when Peter says, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying you're giving an answer that's bigger than what you really understand. And that's what Martha does here. Martha's answer here, let me read it exactly. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, so the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha's answer is something that she does not have any category, really, to understand at this point. This is a theme in John, is not just that Jesus is the Messiah, not just that Jesus is the Son of God, but that what it means for Jesus to be those things is that he is coming into the world. That he's not just a messianic figure that is purely human, who fulfills all the hopes and is a second King David. He's someone bigger than that. He's someone that's going to break your brain a little bit. He was here before he came into the world. He's going to be here after he leaves it. In John, he's the one who is coming into the world. And Martha uses that terminology for a Jew in first century Judea. She has just, just sailed straight into the, world, the, the realm of mystery and completely out of the realm of these are theological concepts I understand. And Jesus is pushing her to do that because she's encountering a moment that requires it. She's encountering a moment where God seems irreconcilable with God somehow, where who she knows God to be, God, you love my brother. You are able to heal him. You're good. You'll do a lot of good things. It's different from what she's experiencing. I want to give a name to these kinds of moments. I think they are alpha and omega moments. I think there are moments when we look and God seems irreconcilable to God and God says, I'm actually bigger. This makes sense and I will make it make sense because I am the resurrection and the life. I am in a category that you don't quite have yet. So what does it mean for her to say? You're the one who's coming into the world. It means I don't understand and I believe. All right, let's look at Mary. What does Mary's conflict look like? Well, for one thing, Mary doesn't go out. We assume the mourners came in from Jerusalem. Jesus is on the road. Martha runs out. Mary stays put. Um, that actually might be a typical behavior. That She's mourning. It also might be that Bit myth. We sent we sent word to you, Jesus. Um, but Martha comes back and says, "The teacher is asking for you." And she says, "John says she quickly rose and went." Now I mentioned personalities. Mary's over here. Mary's chaotic, good. Mary's a bit reactive. Mary's Mary knows that she ought to be helping set the table. Um, when Jesus comes in chapter 10, but she doesn't, she goes and she sits with all the men. Um, cause that's the right thing. Jesus says, Mary's chosen the good. Mary's maybe even chosen the better. It's hard, hard to know what, what exactly is going on. 
Um, Mary is going to show her love for Jesus in chapter 12 by taking this rich ointment and just wasting it on Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. Mary is the chaotic kind of good. So this conflict is going to go different. Mary comes up, but she starts off the exact same way. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then those are the only words. Mary throws herself at the feet of Jesus and just begins weeping. And this is where the Gospel of John does one of the, one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the Gospels. The Gospels will often give us these moments where they will show us what the incarnate Son of God is feeling. Can you imagine that? What kind of an insight you get in that moment? You get to know what God incarnate. It's not just thinking or playing. He's, he's feeling. And what we see here in verse 33 is that when Jesus saw her weeping, uh, the translation says, he was deeply moved in spirit. Now, this word that gets translated deeply moved, deeply moved is probably a perfectly fine translation. The guys who translate the ESV are way better at translating things than me. Um, they had their work cut out with, for them with this word, because this is a word that doesn't occur a whole lot. This is the only time where it kind of occurs in this, in this context with this meaning. Usually this word is a word that's used in an external way where one person is scolding another person. So there's like, there's like a, an object, you know, of this. In this case, this is happening internally to Jesus. It's a word that has harshness. It's a word that has a sense of tension and conflict in it. Now, what does this mean? The, if you read the story as a whole, it's very clear that Jesus is not second-guessing anything. Like, we got that foreshadowing. It comes... It comes out exactly the way that Jesus said it was going to. But in this moment, you see the Son of God enter into the emotional agony by physically within his, emotionally within his own emotions, he's got this tension that is like the tension that Mary is feeling. It's a powerful word. He is full of emotional presence with Mary in her suffering in time. It's somehow tied to this exact moment. Remember how Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die at the beginning of the story, or he knew that Lazarus had died. And you don't see Jesus in that moment having this emotion. The emotion happens when he's with Mary and she is in her lowest place. And that, in that time, Jesus enters in. I don't fully understand this either. I think this is also 
and Alpha and Omega. But I'm thankful for it. On an emotional level, I am thankful that we have a God who enters into our emotions. On an eschatological level, I'm thankful that this kind of obliterates some concept that maybe we have a divine ledger thing going on with God, where when you experience emotional trauma and suffering, that somehow there's this idea that God is up there going, okay, well, they've experienced 7,000 points of emotional trauma, but when I come back and restore the kingdom of God, that's going to be like about 10 billion points. So it's actually just going to be a huge net gain. It's not a problem. That's kind of like this like divine ledger concept of how, of how God's justice is going to work at the end. This tells me that that is not the way that it works. Because God seems to value our suffering the same way that we do. Because if you said to me like, you know what, it's, it's, it's just going to be so overwhelmingly big that like it's not going to matter. There's a moment in the present where I go, yeah, but why would I have to go through this right now? And what this tells me is that God values that suffering the same way that I'm valuing it. I'm saying this is, this is a moment of tension within me. And God comes right there. And he joins me in that. This is who we are believing in. And sometimes, what does belief look like? It looks like what Mary did. We are throwing ourselves at Jesus' feet and just saying the thing that hurts. There's one more conflict. It just rolls us right into our climax. The conflict is between uh, the group of mourners who came from Jerusalem and Jesus. And they come, and they're asking the same question that Martha and Mary asked. Remember, they asked, couldn't Jesus have done something? The, the group of mourners says a, a similar question. Couldn't this man who opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Now, they're asking this not the way that Mary and Martha asked their question. They're asking this kind of from a distance. Mary and Martha ask, this, ask their question from like a, a point of intimacy and faith. The crowd is standing a little bit further back. And for some of them, this question is asked perhaps with openness because you can see some of them look and see that Jesus, when Jesus starts weeping with Mary, they look and they say, he loved this man. But some of them are standing back with a, with a bit of a skeptical eye. And sometimes I think we are in that same position that they're in. We're clearly not asking Historically, well, why did Jesus let Lazarus die? That's the question they're asking. We're asking a question more like this. Not, if he could open the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he do this? But more, if Jesus is who we say he is every Sunday, couldn't he do better than this? If Jesus is who we say he is every Sunday, couldn't he be doing better things in my life? Couldn't he be doing better things in this world? That's a question Jesus is going to engage with to some extent. We're glad that he's already kind of given us a hint at what the answer is and the way he's talked with Mary and Martha, but he doesn't engage them directly. Jesus doesn't enter into dialogue with them. He says, where have you laid him? 
It's a beautiful example of the humanity of Christ right next to his divinity. Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he has to ask them, where where, where did you bury him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, same word. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? There's our theme. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, this is the climax. This is what the conflict has been leading to. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Jesus' raising of Lazarus here is a sign. That's what John calls it. But it's a sign of what? It's actually more than simply a sign that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. It is a sign of that. That's a huge deal. But it's not as if John is telling us about all these signs, giving us sort of like a bullet-pointed list of things Jesus can do, and now I proved it to you because you've seen him do it. So open the eyes of a blind check, water to wine check, you know, it's not like that. These are signs that Jesus is the one who is coming into the world. That Jesus is, Jesus is Alpha and Omega. He's, a, he's something that you don't have a category for yet. What better way to show this than to say the thing that only God can do? Because if you had asked Martha, can God raise the, raise the dead? Martha would have said yes. But if you'd, and everyone in the crowd would have said, yes, God can raise the dead. There was a doctrine for that. It was called the resurrection. They believed it. But if you'd said, can Jesus raise the dead? They would have said, I don't know. I'm not sure he can do that. This is the sign. Not just that Jesus has power over death, but that Jesus can do things only God can do. That Jesus is Alpha and Omega. And one reason I'm glad it's not just about the one thing that gets done here is that you actually might not need Jesus to raise anybody from the dead this afternoon. But there's a whole host of things that the Alpha and Omega is the answer to in your life every moment, every day. That don't show up in the bullet-pointed list of miracles, but they're things that you need someone who's outside of your category to handle. Jesus is Alpha and Omega. Is Son of God worthy of worship? So here's our denouement. Who believes? Who believes in this? Martha believes. She believed before he rolled away the stone. I don't think, I don't think that, that question, I don't think what Jesus says, like, I told you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. I think he's saying, like, you believed. Go ahead and get the reward for it. I think it's one of those, like, didn't you know I was going to be about my father's business kind of questions that Jesus does? Martha believed. Mary believes. Probably doesn't look exactly the same way Martha believes. We see her 
in chapter 12, anoint Jesus's feet, wipe them with her hair. But what about the crowd? Some of them believe. Stay with that for a second. Some of them believe. Some of them believe. Some? You saw a man be raised from the dead? But this is actually the way belief works. Do we believe? For some of us, we might be where Martha is, was. Where we've gone as far as we can with God, so far as we understand him. But we're struggling. Maybe that thing is just a, a simple circumstance like a relationship, something we're dissatisfied with, we feel stuck. Maybe what we're struggling with is actually faith. And maybe in that case, Jesus is calling you into an Alpha and Omega moment. Maybe you're where Mary was, and it's actually not about understanding. You're just hurting. There's some good news if either of those describes you. Jesus can handle both of those situations and many more. And actually, you can come to him today. The same way that Martha and Mary ran to Jesus on the road. You, you can actually come if you've been baptized. You can come to the table and start your journey there this morning with an Alpha and Omega moment where Jesus is going to join you in suffering, where Jesus is going to offer you something that's bigger than categories that you have. He's inviting you to step into that belief. And maybe you're in the crowd, the crowd of mourners, but maybe you've seen something over the shoulder of Mary and Martha today. You've seen his love. Maybe you'd like to be like those in the crowd who believe. I just invite you to continue to seek. And today, one way you can do that is you can pray with the prayer ministers that will be on either side of the, of the sanctuary here during communion. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.